This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is God's word. It's a simple fact. This city loves to eat probably one of the best restaurant cultures in the entire country. I think it's the best, actually. In the Bible, Jesus does a lot over meals. He does a lot over meals. He attends meals. He attends feasts. So we need to look at these meals. We need to look at who Jesus eats with. We need to look at why he meets with them, what he says to them, what the teachings are in these meals. And it's very important. It's a very important part of who Jesus is. And we learn a lot about what he came to do through these meals. And you see this because towards the end of this passage, we see this uh, image at the end about new wine and poured into old wineskins and how you have this new cloth. And he says, well, really what Jesus is saying here is, I bring newness. I'm bringing, you can't contain me. There's there's this um, uh, such, so new that the old rituals, the old forms, the old structures cannot contain or accommodate this newness that I bring. So we're going to learn about newness today, four things today. The gospel, Jesus Christ, he brings us a new priority, a new intimacy. Actually, there's five things. I'm going to make it five things. Jesus brings us a new priority, a new intimacy, a new purity. I'm going to add that he's going to give us a new mercy and a new power. Five quick things. New priority, intimacy, purity, mercy, and power. First, Jesus brings us a new priority. New life, newness, begins with a call. In verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Matthew was a tax collector, very despised among his own people, uh, a betrayer among his own people. And Jesus says, Follow me. And And he told him that, and Matthew got up and followed. Now, over the years, I've noticed that if you're a doctor, in this congregation, if you're in sales in this congregation, um, because of your calendar, because of your schedule, it's always erratic, because of email, because of your mobile phones, now you have teleconferences and WebExes, your lives are never your own. Your lives are never your own. Your lives are out of control, and it's because you have this thing called being on call. You're always on call. If you're on call, you can't just uh, do whatever you want. You can't just pick up and just go on a trip if you want to do that. If you're not on call, you have control over your schedule. 
You have control over your time, especially on a Sunday. The Bible says every Christian is called. Because when you're called, it means you're no longer in control. Now, think about this. Each person's personal experience in coming to the gospel, coming to Jesus, is very, very unique. Here you see Matthew. He's sitting at the tax collector's booth. Jesus says, come up, follow me. And Matthew just gets up and goes. And you, what you can't do is you can't just impose Matthew's unique experience here on everybody. That means you have to leave your job. You have to leave your wife or your spouse. You can't do that. Everybody's personal experience is incredibly unique. Sometimes it is a pickaxe like Matthew. You know, just all of a sudden, boom, he just gets up and goes and leaves everything behind. In other cases, it's a process, a long-standing process in which the gospel's massaged into your life. Here, Matthew's called. He gets up. He leaves his job. His life is totally changed. In other cases, it's a process. But there's a common theme in every one of these experiences. And if you want to see what that is, real change. If you have new life, it always happens with a call. Real change. New life happens with a call. You may have believed in Jesus all your life. You may have grown up in the church, you say, and yet it's possible that you haven't been called. Why did Matthew get up and follow Jesus? When you start to realize that Jesus Christ in your life has been on the periphery, there's this passage in, um, in 2 Samuel where uh, David, who is king, is in Jerusalem, the center of Israel at the time. And he says, the ark of God has been on the outskirts. I need to bring it in. I need you, I, we need to bring that back in. Because what he wants is the presence of God in his life. And for decades, the ark, which represented the presence of God, has been on the outskirts. For a lot of us, God has been on the outskirts of our lives, on the periphery. And then all of a sudden, God starts coming central. He starts coming to the center of our lives. He starts hitting our hearts more and more frequently. And when you start to realize that your relationship with Jesus has been on the periphery all your life, but now, all of a sudden, you're starting to conclude that there is nothing more important than your relationship with God, and you're compelled by that, and you're compelled to give up control. Matthew, it says here, he went home and dined with Jesus. When you go home and start to eat with Jesus, Jesus starts coming into the private parts of your life. Now, for me... And some of you, dining with someone, in particular, some, some stages of your day, is very, very intimate. Very intimate. You only dine with certain types of people at certain types of the day, certain, certain periods of the day. There are certain meals of your day that are reserved only for special people. Special people in your life. Usually, those meals are proportional to money and the amount of time that you spend there. We're very careful about who we dine with. Very careful about who we let in, who we invite to eat. And you should be. In many ways, you should be. The evening meal back then in the ancient days was an incredibly intimate time. It was the center of family life because back then in the ancient world, your culture revolved around family. Society revolved around the family structure, so to dine with your family was a very, very sacred thing. And in, a, in an era when family and culture was the most important time, eating with your family was the most important activity. And here you have Matthew dining with Jesus. So to dine with Jesus then is to bring Jesus Christ into the center of your life. No longer in the periphery, now front and center. That's your mobile phone ringing. Back in the day with pagers, that's your pager beeping. You're coming, he's, he's calling you. When you drop everything because of the call, 
You're saying, this is priority. It's not about, you know, I, be- I didn't believe in Jesus at one point. Now, actually, I believe in God. I-, I-, I believe in Jesus. Many people believe, but are they called? It's about priority. It's about priority. It's about urgency. One of my favorite books in the Bible is only actually two chapters long, the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1, God had rescued his people out of uh, exile in Babylon and brings them back into their home country. And he says, this temple that you had once built for me is now in shambles. You've been gone for 70 years. The temple's a mess. The priority here is to rebuild the temple. You know how long it took them to build this temple? It took them 25 years. And, and the temple was so shabby that uh, there's a book in the Bible where an elder who actually spanned that time from the first temple before it was destroyed and the second temple that was built, when he saw the second temple, this grand, supposedly grand and beautiful temple, He said, they said that he looked at it and he wept at how paltry it was. 25 years. The book of Haggai is about priority. Jesus Christ is one point in the periphery of your life and now all of a sudden, either through a pickaxe experience or through a process, he now comes front and center. It's about urgency. That's the mark of calling. New life always starts with the priority of Christ. The second point is intimacy. Jesus comes near to Matthew Verses 10 to 11, it says, When Jesus was, at, was dining at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they, ate, and, and they saw him, and, and they saw them, uh, the sinners eating with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees, they were concerned about what? Being infected, contamination. You go on a trip, You got multiple cars. You pack each car with four or five people. And you go on this long journey. One of those people is sick, infected. What happens? Everybody in the car, they don't realize this at first, but the person starts to cough and they start to have sweats. And you know what happens? The person immediately next to this person starts getting nervous and they start to inch over. If you're on a bus, And this person is excessively coughing. Everyone's had this experience. If you've ever been on a bus, right? Excessively coughing. At one point, they're touching you on the shoulder. What do you do? You're like, at some point, you get up and some people actually walk away. Why? Because they fear contamination. Nearness brings contamination. For example, if you're physically healthy and you come into contact with somebody with a virus, their sickness makes you, in, in your healthy state, unhealthy. You're risking that. Nearness means a virus has come to you and has contaminated you. It attacks your health. It makes you sick. It goes beyond the physical. Think about it. When you were in high school, actually, you don't even have to look as far back as high school. When you're in the workplace, we are naturally, we are set up in a way because of our brokenness. We are naturally attracted to people who are beautiful and successful. So if someone who is unattractive to you, if someone who is outdated If someone who is unsuccessful wants to come near, you, you consider these people weird. Everybody's got that one person in the workplace that they say, that person is weird. I don't want to go near that person. And if you don't know who that person is, it's you. No, I'm not kidding. Uh, in, everybody's got that one person, right, in the workplace. And, and when that person comes to you and says, will you go out on a date with me? If they're unsuccessful, outdated, unattractive, Let's say you are attracted to that person. The very idea 
of coming closer to this person all of a sudden, especially in high school. When you start, there's always that one crowd that everybody avoids, the untouchable ones. When you start to befriend people from that crowd, their unattractiveness starts to come on you. Their socially outdatedness starts to transfer to you. The technical term for that is imputation. They're unattractive. All of a sudden, because they're so unattractive, they're so unattractive that you just coming near them, coming close to them, becoming intimate with them, if you start to date one of them, it makes you unattractive and outdated and dull and, and, and socially unacceptable. You see that? In verse 11, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they believed in the same way that people who are pure and clean in a moral sense, in a spiritual sense, can become infected by people who are unclean, people who are, who are defiled spiritually or morally, that this, thing can, that this can be transferred through nearness, through contact, you know, in a, in a metaphorical sense, through contact, through intimacy. So in a sense, if you're diseased morally, if you're diseased spiritually, it can make a healthy person who's spiritually healthy, spirit, uh, healthy morally, it can make that person unclean. So by Jesus eating with Matthew, this tax collector who betrayed his own people just so that out of his own greed, and really a tax collector, the types of people that they hung out with, it's like a modern-day drug dealer. We're not thinking about the IRS. This is a modern-day drug dealer. The types of people that drug dealers hang out with, where they hang out, the, what, the things that they do, They're fleecing their own people so that they get rich while the other people get sick or poor or die. And so Jesus eating with this person, going near this person, coming into direct contact with this person at this time of day, in this type of society and culture, in this intimate, relational, personal setting, Jesus is dining with them and laughing with them with sinners and tax collectors. These Pharisees are looking at them and say, wait a second, can't he become corrupted by this? Can't he, won't their defilement transfer over to Christ? Don't you worry about that? Aren't you worried that he will become corrupted by this? Now, they have a point. They probably have a point. Because these meals are so relational, because they are so personal, because you're embarrassed, when you're in an intimate meal with somebody, many of you are going to be going out to lunch today. You're going to go with people that you're comfortable with. Your barriers are down. You're influenced as a result easily in these meals. If you eat enough meals with certain people, you become like those people you're going to become like the people that you eat with the most. Now, what that means is that when you're in a community group, the people that you have around you, how you influence one another there, when you're sitting with people in worship, how you influence somebody there, lunches, even after church, how you influence, that's really going to set the tone of your character. And you can't fool anybody. You know, for me, I can just tell uh, what a person values um, just by seeing who they go to lunch with. I can see that. Think about this. What is about college? What is about college or your grad school experience that shaped you the most? Was it your choice of classes? Was it a lecture in particular? Your labs? Come on, no way. No one's ever been socially or spiritually or morally uh, shaped by their labs, in their labs. If you've been shaped at all through your college experience, my guess is 80% of that shaping has been done and influenced by your friends and your study partners, people that you reside with, people that you eat with. This is why who you date says a lot about you, even if it's just one date. That's why. I mean, 
Think about how, how people grow into pastors. Most people, they go to seminary, then they get a job at a church. You know, I believe one of the biggest things lacking in our world today in the seminary system is a concept of a residency. You know, where you actually reside and you're, you're evaluated all the way through for years and years in an intense way. That's lacking in our seminary system today. At least in America, it's lacking. So you go to seminary, you get all, and all of a sudden that seminary education is what gives you credibility, but you haven't done any practice really. You, don't, you know how many socially awkward people? I'd say 95% of people who enter into seminary are socially awkward. Incredibly awkward people. You're looking at one of them, right? So the, these people go to seminary, and what they do is then they, then they get a job at a church, and then what happens is then they learn to preach. Then they learn to pastor. Then they learn to counsel. Then they learn to teach. Then they learn to train. And a lot of that happens through a lot of brokenness and inadequacy. And really, as you're being equipped to teach, you're learning, you're literally learning just how to just deal with people. And, and really, 20% of who we become today, it, did, it comes from these lectures in seminary. 80% from the people that you've communed with after these lectures in between these lectures, during the mealtimes. Why? Because that's where you process. That's how you process. That's how you learn, and that's how you're shaped. And the people that you hang with the most, whether it's seminary or any kind of education, that's who you become like. That's how you define and interpret your world. Very important. We all agree it's very important. I spend lots of time with, if you think about it, how did I become a pastor? A little bit different. I spent lots of time with people. Ever since I was in high school, I spent lots of time with people. And uh, once I got into college, that focus on people became even more intense, just constantly spending time with people. And, and over the course of time, you know, I never wanted to be a pastor, um, and uh, lots of meals. If I think about the total number of meals, I was going to actually sit and actually calculate the average how many meals were, how many meals I probably had in my lifetime, you know, and how many of those were spent with people, but really lots of gatherings, and all the way into young adulthood, into my vocation and ministry, constantly just trying to fill up every mealtime with people that I want to be intimate with. It really helped to develop in me a DNA of loving people, being with people, the importance and the priority of residing with people, helped to shape my values and my approach. They shaped me. You shaped me. I mean, from three years ago, it shaped my, just being with you has shaped the way I preach, the way I reside with you, counsel, all these kind of things. That's how we influence each other. You learn to eat with a lot of friends, dialogue, talk about things that are important to you, what you read, what you're processing, your experience. Then, actually, I went to school. I kind of went backwards. Then I went to school. Long after this ministerial career went away, because uh, went underway, because I was actually in business, I was, I was working, consulting, very intense, I was constantly around people. My pastoral training, it came through friends, mentors, people I didn't really know were going to become my mentors for days and weeks, months and years, experiences after experience, combined with uh, reading and processing and writing, being tested. That's what formed me. That's how we're all formed. We're really formed. 80% of us are formed by the people around us. You are a product of people in many ways, your relationships. You are the sum of all of your relationships. If you go back to Leviticus, you know, some of us are thinking, gosh, you know, what's, this, what's the purpose of this book in the Bible? It's so boring. If you go back to Leviticus, there's, there are dietary laws. There are laws that restrict how and what you eat. You ever wonder why they're there? Because, you know, they've been made obsolete. As Christians, they've been made obsolete. Very, very detailed. What you can eat, what you can't eat, when you can eat, how much you can eat. So detailed. It was so detailed, in fact, that you can't eat 
with anyone unless that person is absolutely aligned with you in the same exact way. I went to Brandeis University. Brandeis University, 85% Jewish uh, community, 85%. My friends call me Donnie Chostein, right? When at Brandeis, you have two lines at the dining hall. There is a, uh, a regular Gentile line. I'm, I'm not kidding. There's a Gentile line where, you know, people of all different faiths can eat. It's one type of meal. And there is a kosher line with cleaned food. If a Gentile touches that food, the entire line gets defiled. I admit, and I'm confessing to you, I used to sneak into those lines because the food was honestly better, right? And, and I didn't realize the impact of that until I went to school. You know, I feel it was incredibly disrespectful. Don't ever do that if you go to Brandeis. If you've ever, you know, if you're sending anybody to Brandeis, don't, don't, ever, don't t- make sure you tell them to be respectful of other religions and faiths. But the thing is, they're, they're, they go through a tremendous amount. The only way, these laws were designed so that the people that you commune with can only be people who, they're so detailed. These rules are so detailed that you can only commune with people who are absolutely aligned to your values and what you're thinking. And so by, just by the laws themselves, the Hebrews only dined with each other. And because they dined with each other, that's how they preserved through history, even through the Holocaust, they were able to preserve their culture. Amazing. It's an amazing thing. For centuries, they were not infected, they were not contaminated by the beliefs and practices of other people. So in many ways, the Pharisees had a point. It was a concept that was written into their culture, into their laws, in their faith, in their eating, the most intimate part of their day, the most intimate part of their lives. And then here's Jesus. He comes in. Jesus, a rabbi. Jesus, who is clean. Jesus comes in. What does he do? He just completely smashes this structure, just completely does away in one shot, does away with all the dietary laws. He's eating and dining intimately with people who are defiled regularly who defile themselves regularly. So the Pharisees, in a sense, had a point. They didn't understand this because Jesus is smashing their law. He's ignoring the clean and unclean laws. That's what, he do- that's what he's doing. Now, Jesus doesn't ignore the moral law. You notice he doesn't do away with the Ten Commandments. Chapter after chapter in the Bible and the Gospels, in Jesus' teachings, he's upholding the moral law. But these ceremonial laws, these rituals, these clean laws... He does away with. The dietary laws, he does away with. And, and verses 16 and 17, he actually explains it. He says, you know, you can't pour new wine into an old wineskin. He says, I am bringing newness, and I, it's not going to come. It can't fit in these structures that were meant provisionally for you to kind of get an idea before I arrived, these laws were really provisional. They were set up so that you can kind of get a sense of what newness was going to look like. It was meant to preserve you so that when I come, I will do away with the law system once and for all and bring newness to everybody. That's what he's saying. Of course, this shocked the Pharisees. This infuriated the Pharisees. They said, you're going to be defiled. You're going to be tainted. The mor- their moral germs, their immoral germs are going to be on you. Their, their uh, irreligiosity is going to be on you. You're going to be contaminated. How does Jesus explain himself? He says, having heard their complaint, Jesus says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Now, that sounds wonderful because on the surface, Jesus is saying, I am a doctor. That's us. 
Our souls are infected. Your souls are infected. I'm a great doctor. But really what he's saying, and in essence what he's implying is, you, we, are spiritually and emotionally and psychologically, we're sick. We're dying. We're infected. We're angry and we're scared and we're anxious. And as a result, there's discord, there's division, and there's fighting, and there's jealousy, and there's envy, and there's covetousness, and there's malice, and that's why we gossip, and that's why we, we you know, chit-chat in the back, and that's why we point fingers, and that's why we justify ourselves, and that's why we blame shift on other people, and that's why we don't want to look at ourselves, the real, real part of who we are. That's our condition. We're sick. There's a virus. This virus comes in and it's attacking our spiritual DNA and it starts to multiply and consume and it weakens us as a result and it's infecting us and it's killing us. A lot of us, we're dying of this. We're dying of greed because one day you're going to become like greed and it's going to infect your whole system until one day all that's left is greed. And that's what happens to your bitterness and that's what's going to happen in your jealousy. That's what's going to happen in your pride and your self-righteousness. Here's Jesus. He says, that's you. That's your soul. You're infected. But I am a great doctor for your soul. Now, in this context, the Pharisees say, well, if you're a doctor, you shouldn't be touching these people. You're going to get sick. That's the worst thing that can happen because if you're the doctor, you need to stay healthy. They have a point again. They counter with that. If you want to help people with the disease, the key is not coming into contact with them because if you get too close, you've got to stay away because you yourself might get defiled. Don't contract this disease yourself because then you're no good to anybody. They have a point. But Jesus says no. And he gets in there, and that's the Pharisee's problem. Contact, nearness, intimacy. But Jesus isn't like that. He gets right in there. Look at the intimacy of Christ. Look at the love of Christ. Look at the beauty of Christ. It's amazing. Jesus is saying, there is no barrier that I will not cross to get to you. There is no sickness that I will not touch to heal you. That is amazing. Look at the beauty of Christ. Look at the amazing, it's absolutely remarkable, completely burst the old structures, these rigid old ceremonial laws. (laughs) Jesus comes in and he says, you know what? There is absolutely nothing that I will not do to get to you. There's nothing that can stop me from getting to you. That's intimacy. Third point, purity. Here's what Jesus is saying. Matthew chapter 9 makes a lot more sense if you read it right after Matthew chapter 8. There's lots of healing in Matthew chapter 8. There's lots of Jesus touching people in Matthew chapter 8. Especially this one episode, this one narrative in Matthew chapter 8 of a leper. A leper comes. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. Lepers are the utmost contamination. They are the contagion. They are absolutely unclean. If you walk by and a leper happened to be there, they would have to warn you ahead of time, which is why you would often hear in, outside the town, you would often hear them crying out, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, because within earshot distance, it gives you a warning that you cannot get too near. Here's this leper. He breaks the law. He's really breaking the law because he throws himself at a rabbi, a clean person. You heard the parable of the Good Samaritan? This man is beat up. He's bleeding. He's pretty much left for dead. 
Je- you know, Jesus is telling the story about a priest who comes by, a Levite who comes by. These people are ceremonially clean. They probably had duties in their synagogue, duties in their, so- in their, in their church, in their religion. And, and they see this man dying. They see this man bleeding. And he is unclean. He's been beaten up. He's been touched by defiled people. And he himself is being dead. You cannot touch a dead person. They weren't sure if he was dead or alive. So what do they do? They literally walk to the opposite side of the road because they cannot, be, they cannot risk being unclean because then they can't perform their duties. They can't perform their duties. They can't perform their priestly and Levitical duties. I am important. I have roles. I have a title here. I have something to do. I am known. I am acceptable. I cannot touch what is unacceptable. These lepers were there and they're saying, I am unclean. They would cry out so that you, with an earshot distance, would not be touched by them, would not even risk uh, being touched by them. And so here's this leper who comes up to Jesus. Clearly he heard who Jesus was. Clearly he heard about what Jesus can do and who he is. He throws himself. He basically violates the law. He could be thrown in jail for this. And uh, he comes and throws himself at Jesus' feet. He's got this crazy skin disease that is a contagion. And so he's not allowed to enter the town. He's not allowed to enter into the city, in fact. They were always outside of the city. He's not allowed to come into contact with people, direct contact. He's not allowed to connect with people. He's not allowed to enter the temple. These are areas where lots of people are, and it was illegal for him to enter into the temple, which means that for years, ever since he contracted this disease, he's never been able to worship. He's an irreligious man on the outside dying, falling apart, rotting away. He's always outside. People believed it was a moral condition, a spiritual condition. This person must have done something wrong to be where he is. Leprosy meant judgment. This person must have sinned in some way. It's how we look at suffering, right? We don't like to go around and get too close to people who are suffering because when they're suffering, they kind of have a way of draining you and absorbing you. And after a while, their depression transfers over to you. And so we don't, in, in, in our society especially, we're very, uh, we like to keep our problems to ourselves for fear of what? Coming into direct contact and infecting other people. We don't want to be known as people who are infectious. We're very, very sterile in our culture. This leper comes, throws himself at Jesus' feet. And he says, if you will, I know you can make me clean. Remarkable request, illegal request. Remarkable request. Because what this leper is saying is that he knows that Jesus is so powerful. If he just has the desire, he will become clean. He says, I know you don't even have to do anything. You could just say yes. You can just think yes, and I'll be clean. That's what he says. He says, I know you're so powerful. Your wish, your desire will be a command. And Jesus says, I do wish. Look at the love of Christ. The compassion of Christ. And, but the crazy thing here is he knows he doesn't have to say anything, right? If he just wants, he can make him clean. But what does he do? He says, I do wish. Be clean. And then he touches him. He touches him. He makes him whole. He touches him. Now, this leper says, I know if you just want to do it, I will be clean. So why does he touch him? It was intentional. Jesus being absolutely intentional. He touches this man. Actually, touching a leper makes it illegal as well. It's an illegal act. It goes against the clean laws. But when he touches this man, this man is healed. And he, Jesus is supposed to go to the uh, priests, show himself to the Levites, 
uh, to ceremonial cleansing, but Jesus does not do that. Jesus does not go. Why? Because he's saying, I'm violating and doing away with these clean laws once and for all. It's an amazing thing. Think about it. When a sick person comes in touch with a, with a, with a healthy person, that sickness makes the healthy person sick. Right? You know what Jesus is saying here? This is the remarkable thing here. Right? Because uh, religion is based on that. You, get it, you stay away from sick people. You stay away from immoral people. You stay away from the city. That's why Metro Presbyterian Church is in the city. Because for centuries, people said, stay away from the city. For decades here, stay away from the city. It's violent. It's immoral. There's lot, only bad stuff happens in the city. And as a result, a lot of Christians in the church have wanted, desiring to live very stable, sterile lives, have moved out into the burbs. I don't want to come in contact with the city. The city's bad. It's very bad. Judgment in the city. That's, how, that's what religion is based on. You work very hard. You become good. You're successful. You finally got to a place where I'm successful and I'm beautiful and I'm popular and I've been working really, really hard. And if that's the way you're going to get there, if that's the way, whatever there is, if that's the way you're going to get there, you know what's going to happen? The key is to stay away from who? Unsuccessful, unattractive people. Immoral people. If, you're, if your goal in life, if you're going to get there by just being good, then the key is to stay away from people who are bad. That's how you get noticed. That's how you're rendered acceptable. If you're really, really working hard at this, you're going to say, yes, now I've arrived. Now I'm successful. Now I'm, ex- in a, I'm, I'm acceptable. In a sense, what you're saying is, now I can enter the promised land. Jesus Christ comes, touches that man, And he says, you know, really what he's saying is, nothing can make me unclean. Nothing. Nothing can make me unclean. And so uh, nothing, anything that I touch, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how stained you are, no matter how many people have rejected you, no matter how unloved you feel in your life, no matter how low a sense of worth you have, no matter how guilty you are, no matter how defiled you feel, even now, no matter what you've done, no matter what's your record, no matter how ashamed you are, we can go on and on and on. Jesus says, I am, you can never make me unclean, but I can make you clean. My purity is so strong, it actually is stronger than your sinfulness. It actually overwhelms your sinfulness. You know, you say, you know, I'm coming to the church because I want to be pure. I want to be clean. I want to be whole. What do I do? The answer to that question is nothing. You can't do anything. That's the bad news. The good news doesn't mean much without the bad news. There's nothing you can do. But the good news is Jesus is cleanliness. Jesus is purity. And his purity is so strong. What he's saying is if you come into a relationship with me, your infection upon my touch starts to work backwards. Everyone else, if they are unclean, they infect the clean, but not me. That's what Jesus is saying. That's not the way I operate. With me, my purity actually infects your impurity, and it's going to make you pure. Revelation chapter 21. Behold, I'm making all things new. He doesn't say, behold, I'm going to make 
all new things. I'm going to do away with all these sinners, and I'm going to make new, new people who are holy. That's not what he says. He says, behold, I am making, present, I am making all things new. I'm making all things pure. That's the power of Christ. That's the beauty of Christ. And that leads us to the fourth point, mercy. That's the reason why when you come into contact with Jesus, it's going to change the way you relate with the world. Because it's completely opposite of every other religion. Religion says what? Religion creates a very fragile, fake type of holiness. I've been working so hard at this, but that's why you're so bitter and you feel overworked because that's your way of feeling holy. And everyone's got that. Listen, you don't have to be religious to do that. Everyone's trying to earn a sense of worth, self-worth, through their performance, to some type of performance. It could be your sense of holiness could be etched into your career, and if it is, then you have to be perfect in your career. Think about that. And you're going to stay away from people who are not. Ew. You know, stay away from these people. You know, stay away from that crowd because they'll mess you up. If you go near them, you know, all they do is want and want because they're so bad at what they do. You have people like that in your workplace, you know, they just have to, you just have to help them all the time and it's going to slow you down. Mike, I got to go up. You're slowing me down. You're bringing me down. You're keeping me down. Who we choose to marry in that process, then your wife or your spouse, everybody you choose around that is going to be based on keeping you going up. You have to marry the right people, see the right people, hang out with the right people. You have to look into the right types of drinks to drink, right? That's how it works. We're working so hard to perform, to feel a sense of worth. The religious, they're always trying to get favor, to live a good life. And that's true. Your holiness is always fragile. That's why when somebody criticizes you, it devastates you because you are so fragile. You're never sure if you're good enough. You're never sure where you stand. So you have to stay. The best way to, to keep peace is to stay away from people who might challenge that. Stay away from people who could bring you down, who can make you unclean. So whether you're a modern person or whether you're a traditional person, whether you're a religious person or an irreligious person, whether you're a secular person, postmodern person, or, or a religious person, you have your own definition of what is good and what is bad. And based on your definition of what is good and what is bad, you have a group of people that you want to, you're attracted to and a group of people that you're going to stay away from. That's how it works. That's religion. But Jesus, because you're afraid, Jesus says, I'm going to change everything. Jesus changes everything. He says, you can become clean in me right now. Nothing you can do. That's the bad news. There's nothing you can do. The good news is you can receive it, but you can receive it, which means the only prerequisite is I need mercy. I need it. I need this. There are no codes. There are no regulations. There's no steps to lead to faith. Jesus actually comes to you. We always say, you know, we love him because what? He first loved us. That's going to shape you. Friends, if you have this, Jesus Christ in your life, it's going to give you a whole, you know what that means? It's a whole new self-image. It's a brand new confidence and it's a lot of hope. You will have new hope, an undying hope, a lasting hope. That hope is going to shape you. It's going to make you bulletproof. You ever watch, it? kind of not, not the best of movies, World War Z? A zombie movie. Some people are really into zombies, right? Zombie movies. And so World War Z, you have World War Z, uh, you have Brad Pitt. I, I don't want to give the movie away, but, you know, Brad Pitt, at the end, you know, what happens? He's bulletproof, bulletproof. And once he realizes what he's got, whew, doors open up, zombies are everywhere, he just walks right in. 
That's mercy. That is a picture of confidence that leads to mercy, because he has the antidote. Confidence that leads to mercy. The mark of having real intimacy with God in your life is not you're great at obeying. I wish I could say that because that sounds easier. It's actually not easier. It's impossible. But the you know the mark. Thank God. The mark. The mark of a relationship with God is mercy. A confidence that allows you to walk among people that you are not necessarily comfortable with. It's a confidence that allows you to walk among outcast, broken people. You know why? Because you know where you are. If you want to know uh, whether or not you're connected with God today, don't look at how well you obey. Don't look at how successful you are at obedience. You know, you think God's that petty? I mean, how much different is one person to the next? Even a really, really irreligious person and a really, really religious person. How different, really? It's just what's outward. It's not very deep. It's not very deep. The mark of knowing that you are connected with God is mercy. You know what mercy in the Bible really means? Love, service, compassion, walking among people who are not like you. It's easy, you know, you say, hey, I really, uh, Christian love, I love this person. That person's just like you. It's the ability to walk with people who are not like you, people who you would normally walk away from. When you find yourself walking to them, that's mercy. Where do you get the power to live like that? The last point, where do you get the power to live like that? Verse 14, John's disciples, John's disciples go to Jesus And uh, they go to Jesus' disciples and they say, I got a question for you. How come we fast? Even the Pharisees fast. We obey the dietary laws, all the rituals, and your disciples don't. That's what he says to Jesus. That's what they say to Jesus. Jesus kind of gives us kind of almost a parable. He says, how can the guests of a bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time is going to come when a bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. First, what he's saying is, I'm the bridegroom. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I don't just want to have like a relationship with you the way your boss has a relationship with you. You know what kind of relationship you have with your boss? You're kind of chummy, chummy, ah, hey, how's it going, you know? But if your boss were to say, hey, can I come over and eat with you tonight? You know, you're, you're like, you're like <laughs> what? <laughs> right, that's pretty much like, you're like, oh my gosh, what do I say? You know, and a couple things have to happen. One, you gotta, you know, you, you gotta call your spouse, Clean the house now. Get, do whatever you can. Get somebody over there. Clean the house. The second thing you're going to say is, oh my gosh, what are we going to eat? What are we going to do? It's going to be like two hours. How long is it going to stay? Two hours? What are we going to talk about? I don't talk with my boss more than 15 minutes, maybe a 30-minute one-on-one, you know, or a review. What are we going to do for like two hours? What does he like? What does he drink? You see, it's a lot of pressure. Very uncomfortable. Jesus says, I don't want that kind of relationship with you. A lot of us, we walk into the church, that's how we feel. Jesus is like our boss. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ever say, you know, you will obey me because I'm, I'm giving you a job here. Nowhere does he say that. He, of all, you know, Jesus says, I am A, B, C, I am this, I am that, I am this, I am that, over and over and over and over and over again. Most of them, they're metaphorical. He says, I'm the good shepherd. Jesus never says, I'm the great boss. I'm a great manager. I'm the great manager. He never says that. But he does talk about love. He calls himself the bridegroom. He says, the relationship with you and me is so intense. 
it should be like, it's almost like, not even close to, almost like, at least from an earthly perspective, when a husband sees his wife at the end of the aisle. That's what I want my relationship with you to be like. That excitement, that anticipation, that I can't wait to be with this person for the rest of my life. I want, to, I want somebody who I can share with and be with and cry with and vent to, and, and that's prayer. I want someone who I can learn and learn new things year after year after year. That's called Bible study. You kind of, you sound like, oh man, you're, you're kind of like, that sounds bad. No, that's what it's supposed to be. He says, that's what it's meant to be. That's what it's meant to be. He says, my relationship with you should be like the same thing as when, I, when you walk through, when the bride walks through that door, you have to understand my anticipation for you. Jesus, I come. That's what it's like. There's no barrier I would not cross for you, and I want your anticipation to be the same. There is no treasure that I want more. You know why I know that? Because you will die for your treasure, and Jesus Christ died for his treasure. When he's talking about the bridegroom, he says one day the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. Then they will mourn. You know what that means? You read in your call to worship today, really a prophecy about Jesus. Two verses were left out, verses 7 to 8. Really, at the, in verse 8, he says, really by oppression and judgment, he will be taken away. He will be taken away. He says someday the bridegroom will be taken away. He'll be cut off from the land of the living. That's why they'll mourn. This bridegroom with great anticipation, waiting to see, consummate his relationship with his wife, his spouse, will be taken away. Then they will mourn. This is how we have power. How is the unclean made clean? How is righteousness given to people who don't deserve it? It's because Jesus Christ absorbed the sin. Jesus Christ took on the disease. Jesus Christ took on the infection. He resided and resided with, with people who were poor and lepers and touched them. And you think all those years that he's been hanging with them and being with them, you become like the people you hang with. On the cross, Jesus Christ cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ became outcast. Jesus Christ became forsaken. You know, he wasn't even crucified in Jerusalem. He was crucified outside of the city like a leper. He was a social leper. He was cast down. He became a leper. He became a criminal. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin pure to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, pure. The call to worship says, surely he took up our infirmities. He became the disease to do away with the disease. That's why he had to die, to do away with the disease once and for all. That's how we have power. Jesus Christ became excluded. Jesus Christ became cursed. Jesus Christ was beaten. Jesus was punished. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, you are my priority. You are my doctor. You are the one person who could heal me. And yet, you've turned away from me. 
As I'm crying out, you've walked away. You've looked the other way. You've crossed over to the other side and you've rejected me. You've left me for dead. I no longer have intimacy. I no longer have mercy. And now I no longer have power. He says he lifted up his head. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. Jesus, who was pure, became defiled so that we who are sinners, we who are tax collectors, we who are lost, we who are sick, we who are diseased and infected and dying can become pure. When you're a recipient of grace, when you really experience grace, when it shapes you, you can't draw lines anymore. You don't have to. It's the end of the lines. It's the end of competition in a sense. It's the end of jealousy. It's the end of envy and covetousness. It's the end of all snobbishness. There's no such thing as I'm better than you because what are you better with? What are you better about? None of those things got you the acceptance that you need. The acceptance that you need came because Jesus was pure, touched you, healed you, bled and died for you. That intimacy with that, you know what? And yet, on the cross, do you know that it says he was satisfied. Like he was happy. It means, it's not like he was like, can, you, can these people believe what I'm doing for them? That's not what he's, as they're mocking them, as they're spitting at him and throwing stones at them and cursing him and yelling at him and taunting him, and as God turns his face away, it says Jesus was glad to do it. That's the anticipation of the bridegroom. Do you love Christ? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. I mean, yeah, there's all this other stuff that we do. Do you love Jesus? I mean, he is amazing. When we talk about amazing grace, you know, it is amazing. When that kind of intimacy enters into your life, you become generous. You become inviting. You are filled with joy and a freedom that you could not earn on your own. And you just want to set people free. And you know how you do it? You touch them. You come near with them. You become intimate with them. I know there are a lot of people here who are on their way. You come week after week. You learn more and more about Christ. You're still trying to get your arms wrapped around what Jesus is about. You know, Matthew, he says, Matthew, follow me. And he does. Here's the hope. I'm going to close with this. Verse 13, he actually doesn't look at the Pharisees and say, you know, you mis- all this study, you guys are a waste. That's not what he says, right? Incredibly gracious. He says, go and learn what this means. Consider. Think about it. In other words, Christianity doesn't mean you leave your mind at the door. It means it's the only, it's, you have to use your mind and you have to look at all the data and you have to interpret. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to think about this. Take it in. Absorb it. Because the more and more you absorb it, you become infected with that purity and you start to believe. Will you do that? Keep at it. You got to hang in there. You got to keep at it. You got to do your homework. You got to pick up that Bible once in a while. You got to pray once in a while. Go to a community group. Join them. Plug in. Learn. Think. Consider. Let it challenge you. You know, when, they're, when you're fighting disease, lots of battles in the heart, right? Lots of battles in the body. 
Let it battle you. Let it challenge you. That's how you know it's working. That's how you know it's working. Let there be a fever. Let it challenge you. Will you consider that? Let's pray.